0: Please open your Bibles with me to Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2. I will read the chapter in its entirety, Titus chapter 2. The Apostle Paul writes, but as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine." Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved too much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. To be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity in doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame. "'having nothing bad to say about us. "'Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters "'in everything, to be well-pleasing, "'not argumentative, not pilfering, "'but showing all good faith "'so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior "'in every respect. "'For the grace of God has appeared.'" bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed, And to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Amen. This is the very word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven. We recognize that your name is holy, and that as we approach you this morning, we do so with reverence and awe. We do not casually approach you or call upon your name. We come to you with a great sense that you are the thrice holy God. That you live an unapproachable light. That there is no way on our own that we could ever pray to you and be heard. We thank you that you are a saving God. And that you have given your son to be our savior. That we are saved by his life and by his death and his resurrection. That his blood cleanses us from all sin. And that he has made a way for us, a new and living way. Whereby we might approach you, the holy God. We thank you that your throne is a throne of grace. That we might receive grace and help in our time of need. And Father, this Lord's Day is every day we are a people in need. We entrust ourselves to you. We cast all of our cares, all of our anxiety, all of our fears upon you. We pray, O God, that you would replace our fear with faith and that where there are things that are distracting our minds, the cares of this life, that we would be able to entrust all of those things to you. Father, we thank you that you rule, not only over this day, but over every day, that you rule over the future, And that as we anticipate the future as your people, we need not be afraid. But instead, we are to look for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. We thank you that the day is coming when heaven will be opened and Christ will come back and that he will establish his kingdom in this world. And until then, may we live in hope And may we, by your grace, deny ungodliness and worldly desires. And may we live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present evil age. We recognize that Christ died to redeem us from every lawless deed and to make us a pure people that would be zealous for obedience. Father, we thank you in particular for your design of the family and for the great instructions that you give to us regarding marriage and parenting and children. We submit to your ways and to your your truth. And we pray that even today as we continue to look at your instructions to us regarding marriage, that you would make us eager to hear and to follow your ways. Father, I pray that you would be our refuge today, our hiding place, that our souls would be still, even as we have sung. We pray that above all things, you will be glorified and honored, that the name of Christ will be held in great esteem, In our midst. And we pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen. Well, please open your Bibles once again to Colossians chapter 3 and to verse 18. The title of our message is The New Humanity at Home, part 2. And with the time that the Lord has given to us today, we will limit our time to verse 18. In verse 18, the Apostle Paul writes, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. It was Francis Schaeffer who said, Tell me what the world is saying today, and I'll tell you what the church will be saying seven years from now. Tragically, it is the tendency of the church to oftentimes be influenced by the world and the sinful culture around it. Without question, many men and women in the church have been influenced, knowingly or unknowingly, by the ideology of feminism. Instead of thinking biblically about manhood and womanhood, And instead of holding fast to God's design for marriage and family, many within the walls of the church have embraced worldly ideas and practices from the influence of feminism. Now, feminism is a difficult word to define, and that is because there is not one standard definition of what feminism is. For some, feminism is simply the idea of promoting equality between men and women. Some examples of this would include the 19th Amendment to our Constitution, going back to the year 1920. It's also known as women's suffrage, which allowed women the right to vote. Another example is the Equal Pay Act of 1963 which is a labor law aimed at abolishing wage disparity based upon sex. A third example is sexual harassment laws in the workplace. All of these things are right, and they are good. They promote equality between men and women, and they protect women from injustice. But at the other end of the spectrum is the radical, militant, leftist form of feminism, which hates men, which defines freedom as liberation from men, which believes a woman's identity is to be found in her career, which disdains the biblical concept of marriage and family, which disdains motherhood, which supports abortion, and on and on it goes. This kind of feminism stands for things like girl power. It teaches women to be loud and proud. It teaches women to say to men, anything that you can do, I can do better. It teaches women to despise authority, especially male authority. And sadly, it is elements of even this kind of feminism that have influenced the thinking and the practice of both men and women in the church today, sometimes in subtle ways. On your sermon notes, you will notice a quote from Courtney Riesig from her book, The Accidental Feminist, Restoring Our Delight in God's Good Design*. And she says this, As feminism of the 70s launched women out of the home and into the workplace, women found purpose and identity outside of a husband and children. What feminism did was slowly erase the differences between men and women. And now note the next sentence. Equality now means sameness. If men and women are truly equal, and I believe they are, then according to feminism, that equality has no distinction in how they live, end quote. She really hits the nail on the head. A tenet of modern feminist thinking is that equality now means sameness. That is all throughout our culture. There is no distinction between how men and women should live because they are the same, is what the culture says. That is a direct contradiction to the Bible's very clear teaching that affirms distinctive roles between men and women within marriage. Christian husbands and wives do in fact share a wonderful, a marvelous equality together. But they are not the same. Equality does not mean sameness. There are differences. And these differences are intentional. They are by God's good and wise design. Now, if you have any question in your mind that feminism has influenced the church... All you have to do is bring up the subject of submission. Some people even in the church shudder or become uneasy when they hear the word submission. And if that happens, there is a problem. The problem may be within that person's own heart. It may be that that person has a sinful attitude in their heart toward God's design of submission. It may be that that person has embraced the world's thinking at this point over against what the Bible teaches. Or the problem may be from a different source. It may be from a distorted understanding of what submission means. If you think submission means that a wife is a slave, a piece of property, or a doormat, that is a distortion of biblical submission. If you think submission means abuse or oppression, that is a distortion of biblical submission. If you think submission means being passive and being silent and never speaking, having no opportunity to express your ideas or your opinions, that is a distortion of biblical submission. Or if you think submission means that a wife is supposed to be just like June Cleaver from the 1950s, from one of my favorite shows, Leave it to Beaver. That is a distortion of biblical submission. If these things come into your mind when you think about submission in marriage, then you need to change the way that you think about submission because that is not what the Bible teaches. One of my prayers is that we as Christians, that we as a church, will not base our view of marriage and the family upon the world or the culture, but upon the Bible. We are to have a distinctively Christian view of marriage and the family, which is to govern how we live in the home. We hear a lot of talk these days about traditional marriage and how traditional marriage is under attack by the culture, and it is. There is no doubt about that. But as a Christian and as a pastor, I am not so much concerned for traditional marriage as I am concerned for biblical marriage. When people talk about traditional marriage, they typically have one thing and one thing only in their minds, heterosexual marriage as opposed to same-sex marriage. But in discussions about traditional marriage within the culture and within the church, there is very little to no emphasis on the distinctive roles that God has given to husbands and wives. You almost never hear that in discussions about traditional marriage. And so as Christians, we must be committed to all that the Bible teaches about marriage, not just some of what it says. Another prayer of mine is that we would come to the clear understanding that submission in marriage is not only right, but it is good. It is good. It is to be celebrated. It is to be practiced in the Christian home with joy. I am deeply of the opinion that the church needs to restore its delight in God's good design for marriage. And that brings us to Colossians chapter 3. As we learned last time in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 to 17, Paul addresses the church as a whole. But beginning in verse 18 and going all the way into chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul turns a corner and he addresses specific groups of people within the church Wives, husbands, children, fathers, slaves, and masters. In this new section of his letter, Paul turns his attention from the spiritual family of the church to the physical family in the home. He addresses three relationships within the Christian home, the first of which is the relationship between wives and husbands in verses 18 and 19. As Christians, we are a new humanity in Christ. As the church, we are one in Christ. Male and female believers are one in Christ. But our oneness in Christ does not erase. It does not eliminate distinctive roles in the marriage relationship. And so at this point, we are learning what the new humanity in Christ is to look like in the home beginning with Paul's direct address to Christian wives in the church. Paul's instruction to Christian wives is divided into two headings. You can see these on your notes, marked by Roman numerals 1 and 2. The first one is the divine design of submission in marriage in verse 18. To each wives and husbands, Paul gives just one overarching responsibility that they each have in the marriage relationship, and that one overarching responsibility for Christian wives is submission. Hupotasso, that that is the Greek word. It means to place under, to place one under a leader. Now, in our last message, we gave four clarifications of submission. They're there on your handout, your notes to look at. Number one, we noted, it is a limited submission. A wife is not to submit to all men. She is to submit to one man, that is her husband. It is a limited submission. Number two, it is also a voluntary submission. And we said that submission must not be confused with subjugation. The husband has no right to force his wife into submission. It is a voluntary submission on the part of the wife. Thirdly, we noted that it is a co-equal submission. Submission does not imply that the wife is inferior to the husband. Both men and women are equally made in the image of God. They are one in Christ in salvation. And so it is a submission between equal partners. And then fourthly, we noted, it is a one-directional submission. Submission in marriage is not mutual. The husband bears the unique responsibility and role of being the leader in the home to whom the wife is to submit, and hence it is a one-directional submission. Now, as we pick up where we left off last time, what I want to do this morning is to further expand upon the meaning of submission by looking at what submission isn't and what submission is. And I feel compelled to do this because there is so much controversy and so much confusion around the concept of submission in marriage. And so we begin with letter B now, what submission isn't. And I've tried to squeeze all of this on your sermon notes Number one, submission doesn't mean that the wife is to put her husband in the place of Christ. This means two things. A husband is not the king of his home. And when I say that, I think back to many years ago when I was in the presence of a man older than myself who said to me, I am the king of this house, as he slammed his hand on the couch. At that point, I just kind of walked away. A husband is not the king of his home. Jesus is the king of the home. While a wife is under her husband's authority, that is true, her ultimate authority is not her husband. It is Christ. And a second way that we can think about this is like this, wives... Put your hope in God, not in your husband. Put your hope in Christ, not in your husband. Submission doesn't mean that the wife is to put her husband in the place of Christ. Number two, submission doesn't mean that the wife is to view her husband as infallible. I know that you all struggle with this. I know that probably nobody struggles with this, but it still needs to be said. You have to understand about your husband that he is not always going to be right. He's not always going to do what is best and what is wise. He is a fallen human being just like you are. He is a sinner just like you are. And therefore, do not expect your husband to be perfect. Expect your husband to fail, because he will. Number three, submission doesn't mean that the wife is to give up independent thought. In a certain sense, a wife has a mind of her own. She doesn't have to agree with her husband on everything. For example, just because the husband loves hunting or football doesn't mean that she has to love those things. She has a right to love things that are different from her husband. Number four, submission doesn't mean that the wife is to be afraid of or intimidated by her husband. If a wife is afraid to speak to her husband, talk to her husband, Something is terribly wrong in the home. It should not be that way, ever. Number five, submission doesn't mean that the wife can't try to influence her husband's decisions for good. She is the helpmeet. She is to help the husband. And believe me, the husband needs a lot of help. My best counselor, by far, is my wife. I am indebted to my wife for the counsel that she gives to me on a myriad of things. And so wives can and should give counsel to their husbands, especially when they think their husbands are perhaps making a wrong or an unwise decision. Number six, submission doesn't mean that the wife is to not use her gifts, her skills. And her talents. God has given to every Christian woman gifts and skills and talents, and she is to use those things in the home, in the church, for the glory of God. Number seven, submission doesn't mean that the wife is to give in to every demand by her husband. There may be times when a wife not only can but should refuse to submit to her husband if and when he attempts to lead her into sin. As a Christian, as we've already noted, the wife's ultimate authority is not her husband. It is Christ Jesus himself, to whom she is to supremely obey, even over against her husband at times. And then number eight, Submission doesn't mean that she is to ignore and never confront her husband's sin. And by this, I don't mean nitpicking on every little thing, every little failure, every little mistake. But if there is the development of a pattern of sin that is unbroken and unrepented of in the home, the wife has the right and even the responsibility to lovingly, respectfully confront her husband in his sin. That's what I want for my wife. If she sees that in me, confront that. And then number nine, submission doesn't mean that she is to tolerate abuse from her husband, be it emotional or physical. If this happens, if there is abuse in the home from the husband, listen carefully, the wife needs to contact the proper authorities. If you are a wife in this church and your husband is abusing you, contact me, contact Rick, and we will help you, or contact the police, because that is not what submission is about. It does not mean that you tolerate abuse from your husband. Well, that brings us now to what submission is as we continue to expand our understanding of this very critical term. Number one, submission means that you recognize God's design in marriage involves differences in role. And if you come to that point, you are automatically very countercultural, just in the mere recognition that there are differences of role. Again, equality does not mean sameness. Men and women are equally created in the image of God, and they are one in Christ. But in the marriage relationship, they have, we have different roles. Number two, submission means that you recognize God has put your husband in a position of authority in the marriage relationship. He is the leader. He is the leader in the home. By God's good and wise design. Number three, submission means that you voluntarily submit to your husband's leadership. Listen carefully here. This is a matter of obedience. It is a matter of obedience, not a, not a matter of opinion. Not a matter of preference, but a matter of obedience. If a wife rejects her husband's authority because she is competing with his authority, that is sin on her part. If a wife pretends to be submissive in order to manipulate her husband to get what she wants from him, that is sin on her part. Do you realize that in every New Testament passage that addresses the roles of husbands and wives, that women are called to submit to their husband's leadership? Here in Colossians 3, Ephesians 5, Titus 2, which I read earlier, and 1 Peter chapter 3, those are the four passages in the New Testament that describe and expand upon the roles of husbands and wives, and all four of them call the wife to submit to the leadership of her husband. Number 4 submission means that you voluntarily submit to your husband's leadership in a few things. Now read it carefully. It's not a typo in everything. And if you think I am overstating it here, hold your spot in Colossians 3 and turn with me to the sister letter of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians 5 and verse 24, we will throughout our discussion on marriage interact with Ephesians 5. It is the largest treatment on marriage in the New Testament. And so if you look at Ephesians 5, look at verse 24. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in a few things, in most things, in everything. I did this very deep and critical word study on the word everything, and it means everything. (laughs) Submission involves every area of life. A wife's submission to her husband's leadership is not conditional It is not selective submission. Think about that. It's not the wife picking and choosing what parts of her husband's leadership she wants to follow and what parts she doesn't want to follow. Some wives might say, I will submit to my husband if. If. You got to remove the if. Because that isn't what the Bible teaches. The only time it is appropriate to say, I will submit to my husband if, is when sin is involved. Unless the husband is attempting to lead his wife into sin, she is to submit to him in everything. Even when she disagrees. Even when she disagrees. That has to be included in everything or else everything doesn't mean everything. Number five, submission means that you demonstrate respect to your husband and his leadership. Stay in Ephesians 5 and look at verse 33, the last verse in Paul's discussion here on marriage. He he gives sort of a summary, if you will, on the role of the husband and the wife. And he says, nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband husband. And the word that Paul uses is literally fear, her husband. And it's not fear in the sense of dread, being afraid for your safety, your well-being. It's fear in the healthy, proper sense of respect, revere, even treat with awe. She is to respect her husband and respect his leadership. And so at this point, let me ask some questions to the wives, to the, to the ladies of our church. You, you may not be married now, but one day you may be married. This is very important. Wives, are, are you respectful to your husbands? Do you speak to your husband in a respectful way? Do you treat your husband with respect? Do you speak about your husband to others? In a respectful way. If you speak negatively of your husband publicly. Or if you complain about your husband publicly. You are not treating him respectfully. And you need to repent of that. Shelley and I made an agreement a long time ago. That we would not speak negatively of each other in public. That's our personal conviction, our personal practice. And so, wife, you are to protect your husband in a certain sense. You are to respect your husband in private and in public. And here is a warning to the wives. If you do not treat your husband with respect, you will push him away. You will push him away. There are some wives who complain so much about their husbands and who treat their husbands with such disrespect that they do not make their home a welcome place for their husbands to be. Wives, make sure that your home is a place that your husband wants to be, where he loves to be, because he is treated with respect there. And now let's sort of add to this idea of showing respect, coupling it with the idea of nagging. I I listened to a story about a couple who went in to see a pastor for marriage counseling. And what was discovered in the course of that counseling is that the wife was constantly, constantly nagging her husband in the home. And the counselor told the wife, you need to stop nagging. And because of the nagging, the husband was intentionally staying later and later at work and not coming home early. When she stopped nagging, her husband started coming home sooner. And their marriage became a happier situation. And so show respect, don't nag. Listen to the Proverbs. Let's let's turn out. There's a few Proverbs I want you to see. They're so picturesque of marriage. Uh, Look at Proverbs beginning in chapter 19. These are things that are good for us to hear, to be reminded of them. Proverbs 19 and verse 13. This proverb has something to say about children and then marriage. It says, a foolish son is destruction to his father, and the contentions of a wife are a constant dripping. Now, have you ever been in a situation where something just keeps dripping over and over and over and over, and it drives you crazy after a while? Well, I think we can all relate to that, and, and, and Solomon is warning that in the home, that's how the contentions of a wife or the nagging of a wife can become. It can become too much. In Proverbs chapter 21, another vivid picture, Proverbs 21 and verse 9, Solomon says, 21-9, it is better to live in a corner of a roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Wives, are your husbands sleeping on the roof? Maybe there's a reason for that. Now, in the ancient world, the roofs were not like ours, where they're going up at a high angle. They're flat. You could go up on the roof and hang out, even sleep there. And the idea here is that the contentious woman has made the home so unpleasant that the husband is now living up on the roof. And if that's happening, that is not a good situation. Saying in Proverbs 21, look at verse 19. The the picture is sort of changed here a little bit by Solomon. It is better to live in a desert land than with a contentious and vexing woman. It's one thing to move up on the roof, another thing to move into the desert. And yet that is a better situation, Solomon says, than living in a home. Where the wife is not respectful, where she does not submit to his leadership, where she doesn't follow him, you'll drive him to the desert. That's very vivid. And so, wives, I want to give you something. I don't normally do this, but I want to give you a homework assignment this week. And I don't mean that in a, a disrespectful way at all. Wives, meet with your husbands this week, just the two of you. Carve out some time where it's just the two of you where you're undistracted, where you can talk and think about these things carefully and ask him, are there ways that I can better submit to your leadership? Ask him if there are ways that you are treating him with disrespect. And I want to exhort you to listen well. Don't get defensive and seek God's grace to grow where you need to grow as a Christian wife. Do that this week. And so now back to Colossians chapter 3. We have seen that there is the divine design of submission in marriage. But that brings us now to the second major heading, the divine motivation of submission in marriage Again, back in Colossians chapter 3 in verse 18. And this is found in that last little phrase, as is fitting in the Lord. This statement is so important. And and please notice that Paul doesn't merely instruct the wives to submit to their husbands and leave it at that period and then go on to the husbands. Instead, he adds this very helpful statement, which provides the proper motivation for a wife in her submission. I see three truths in this statement, and some of them we've already covered, but it's good to mention them again because I see them in this little phrase, and they're listed there on your notes. The first one is letter A the scope of submission. How far is a wife to submit to her husband? She is to submit to him in everything so long as he doesn't lead her into sin. We've said that before. We need to say it again. A wife's ultimate authority is not to her husband. It is Christ. The scope of her submission then is limited by what pleases the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. She is to submit as is fitting in the Lord. If the husband says, honey let's cheat on our taxes this year, she is to say, no, no, she must refuse. I also see the goodness of submission here. Think about this. What is the basis of a wife's submission to her husband? Why is it like that? It's like that because this is God's good design. It's important to lay great stress upon this truth. I keep repeating it today because there are non-complementarians out there who argue that a wife's submission to her husband in marriage is not based upon God's good design. They argue that it is based upon one of two things. Listen carefully. Number one, they say Paul's instruction for wives to submit to their husbands was based upon an accommodation to the patriarchal culture of his day. Paul's just going along with the world. This is what the world does, and so Paul accommodates the world at that point. But would you notice carefully in verse 18 that Paul does not say, Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting with the culture. He says, Wives, be submissive to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Nothing to do with culture. As we will see next time, what Paul teaches here about marriage is very countercultural in the ancient world, especially with respect to what he tells husbands. Well, secondly, another argument by non-complementarians is this. They say a wife's submission to her husband is a consequence of the fall. Listen to that carefully, a consequence of the fall. Their argument goes like this. Male headship was imposed upon Eve and all subsequent wives as a penalty for Eve's role in the fall. But when a wife is redeemed in Christ, she is then released from the punishment Of male headship. Now there's just one problem with that view. It's not what the Bible says. And that is a big problem. A wife's submission to her husband in marriage is not a curse. It's not the result of the fall. It's not a penalty. It's by God's good and wise design. It is what is right before God. It is what is good in marriage. Do it as is fitting in the Lord, Paul says. And then thirdly is the manner of submission. How is a wife to submit to her husband? As it is fitting in the Lord. When you think about a distinctively Christian marriage, it involves three persons, the wife, the husband, and the Lord. Also, a distinctively Christian marriage is about worship because all of the Christian life is about worship. For the Christian wife, then, submission to her husband is an act of worshiping God. That is how she is to view it. A wife's submission to her husband is much, much, much bigger than her husband. It's not primarily about the husband. It is primarily about the Lord. One way a Christian wife submits to Christ is by submitting to her husband. And if she does not submit to her husband, neither is she submitting to Christ. One of the most transforming things... That could ever happen in your marriage is when you discover that God has designed the marriage relationship to be about worship. Both wives and husbands are to live out their roles unto the Lord. If you'll one more time look at Ephesians 5, again, the sister epistle to Colossians, very similar in its content. Paul says it a little bit differently in Ephesians five than he does in Colossians three eighteen. Ephesians five and verse twenty two wives be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. You submit to your husband because you submit to Christ. It's an act of worship. And so, wives, do you view your marriage as one of the ways that you are to worship the Lord? Ultimately, submission is not about you and your husband, it's about you and the Lord. It's a very spiritual thing. You have to get beyond the mere horizontal aspect of your marriage and focus on the vertical aspect of your marriage. So when you voluntarily yield yourself to the leadership of your husband, you must do so by not only looking into the face of your husband, but by looking into the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that it is unto him that you are ultimately submitting yourself to. So the manner of submission is as to the Lord. It is fitting in the Lord. It is an expression of devotion to Christ. But not only is it an act of worshiping God, it is also an act of trusting God. And if you are a wife, you can affirm that. Marriage is one of the ways that wives are called to trust God. You must trust God to lead your husband to lead you. I'll say that again. You must trust God to lead your husband to lead you. Is that easy? No, it's not easy. It is a test of your faith. But God calls you to trust him in your marriage in this way. Well, on your notes, I have tried to squeeze in a final paragraph. I had to shrink the font to make it fit, and it's from Family Life. That's a a wonderful ministry. I don't know if you're familiar with Family Life. They're on the radio and online and so forth. They're out of Little Rock, Arkansas, and, and they're really good, and so they've provided a summary on the role of Christian wives And it reads this way We believe God has charged each wife to fulfill the responsibility of being her husband's helper. We believe a wife will give an account to God for how she has loved, respected, and given support to her husband. We uphold the biblical truth that she is of equal value with her husband before God. We reject the notion that a wife should assume the leadership responsibilities of her husband. Likewise, we reject the notion that a wife should passively defer to the dominance of her husband. We believe that a responsibility is to willingly and intellectually affirm, respect, and submit to her husband as the leader in the relationship and in his vocational calling. Therefore, we are committed to exhorting a wife to be in support of her husband by accepting and excelling in her responsibility as his helper. And then you can see the the key passages that are in view to support that statement. And so as I see it, the, the role of the wife, it again is a good design that God has given to you. But it's hard. It's not easy. And you know what's even harder? The role of the husband. And next time we will look at what God's instructions are to the role of the husband to love his wife, and to lead her with sacrificial love. Well, this morning it is our joy, our delight to remember and celebrate the person of Jesus Christ. And as we think about marriage, as we have from Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, especially in Ephesians 5, we learn that the marriage relationship points us to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for us. We are his bride, and he laid down his life for his beloved bride. And we are reminded of that in a profound, memorable way in the Lord's Supper. If you are an unbeliever and you are here today, we thank God that you are here, hearing the word of God, but the Lord's table would not be for you. And so when the tray comes to you, if you will simply pass it to the next person in your row. And if you are a believer, it is open to you, of course, but it is a time for us to make sure that our hearts are right with the Lord, that we confess sin where that is needed, so that we eat and drink in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And so let's take a few moments to prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner.